I really debated, and George and I kind of joked about this a little bit, and I really debated um, whether or not to talk about something this morning. Before I do that, let's go ahead and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our church. Thank you for the grace that you freely give, for that doxology that we just sang this morning. And we ask that your grace come down upon this word, that I get out of the way, and that everybody here just gets to hear from you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what I debated talking about this morning, I, 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 I'm going to give you a couple questions that sound like they have nothing to do with a sermon. And I promise it'll be short. I'll get through this quick. So, um, one, number one, do you make New Year's resolutions? Okay, that's okay. Should you make New Year's resolutions? Um, I, think, I think a lot of us might find it silly because usually this time of year you're th hearing things like, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to go and cut out sugar or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that or this is going to be my year. This is going to be it. I'm going to do it. Should you make New Year's resolutions? I think we find out quickly in most cases there are some exceptions for the few of us who have self-control and overcome, that as the year continues on into February and March, we quickly forget the resolutions that we set out at the beginning of the year. But what about resolutions in general? A resolution, as defined by the internet, is a firm decision to do something or not to do something. It sounds like Shakespeare, but it's not. How many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards? Edwards is noted as, this is according to Wikipedia, one of America's most important and original philosophical theologians. He wrote many theological works and one of the most popular sermons ever written, you might have heard of it, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He lived a shorter life than most of us today, being diagnosed at the age of 54 with smallpox. With that being said, he still accomplished a lot of things. They didn't have cures for that in the 1700s either. He wrote a list of 70 resolutions between the ages of 18 and 19. How many 18-year-olds are even thinking about some of the things he wrote here? But, um, by the grace of God. So here's what it says at the beginning of his resolutions. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. He went on to write 70 items that he was resolved to do as a follower of Jesus by the grace of God for the glory of God. So maybe resolutions, not necessarily New Year's resolutions, are not a bad idea for the Christian. They can be a good thing if done, again, by the grace of God, for the grace of God. Not necessarily the gym or cutting out sugar, but something edifying. We're not going to go through Edward's work right now because I've talked way too long about New Year's resolutions and it's time to talk about Jude. So let's get into that. So, passage today, Jude 24 and 25. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, forever. Amen. That's a great word and a great way to end a letter. Joyful expression of who God is and what he has done. So I feel like we should summarize Jude uh, for the sake of context here. Uh, let's, we need to think about a few other things. So Jude is, we've talked about this a lot, Jude is the younger brother of Jesus, even though he doesn't refer to himself as such in the letter. At an earlier time in his ministry, he didn't believe his big brother. John 7 verse 5 says very plainly, for not even his brothers believed him. Jude being one of them. What would you think if your siblings started equating themselves with God? <laughs> I think we can be a little honest there. I mean, uh, uh, and, and something that just kind of startled me. I, I never thought about it from Jude and James' perspective, but a sinless sibling. Would you love that guy or would he drive you nuts? <laughs> I guess it depends on what kind of person you are. But Servant, a servant of Christ. Servant can also be rendered slave. Jared has mentioned this several times throughout the book, and it's too important to pass up. He goes on from acknowledging him as Brother Jesus to Lord Jesus. He writes this letter to us, the church, again from verse 1, look at verse 1, called and beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about being kept today. Jumping down to verse 3 in the book, he reveals that he would like to, what he would like to have talked about. He wanted to talk about our common salvation, the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but is directed by the Spirit of God to give us a letter that we've received and what we're viewing today. A call to fight the good fight against false teachers who had entered the church, wolves in sheep's clothing, turning the grace of God into sensuality and denying our very Lord Jesus Christ. These people taught, or today teach, a Christless Christianity, taking the focus off the work of Jesus and attempting to take the glory and attention themselves. We got the profile of a false teacher a couple weeks ago. They want credit. They want authority. They want glory. They want to appear like they have it all together. And part of their mission is to deceive you and me. They walk for the sake of gain, and they look the part, Jude says, like a hidden reef, but they are, and directly quoting verse 16, grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. They had false teachers in Jude's day, and we have some today, and they may talk about how successful they are or how big their bank account is, because money equals power. They point one finger at God and another at themselves, deceiving our brothers and sisters with words such like, if you do the things the way I do them, God will bless you. If you had more faith or do this practice or ritual that I did, God will take care of all of your finances and restore your health. If you were more like me, God would take care of you. You would have this or that. Me, me, look at me, look at me. The list of accomplishments goes on and on. They cause divisions, and they are, according to verse 19, devoid or without the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. 
That's a big problem. You can't teach the things of the Spirit if you don't have the Spirit. They claim to receive messages from God, and they are shown to be false by their words. A fool is made known by his abundance of words, and a false teacher is made known by his lofty promises and empty flatteries, speaking of things he doesn't know anything about. They are carnal and sensual, and carnal and sensual cannot discern spiritual. It's not possible. Jesus says in the Gospel of John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And in verse 5 of chapter 10, Jesus says, A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. False teachers will try, but they will never ultimately be able to deceive one of the shepherd's flock. They are not able. They do not have the power or the authority. In verse 20, still looking at the entire book of Jude, we're getting ready to come to the doxology. Our letter takes a turn. Jude points us to how we as the church should respond. We are to, as we learned last week, keep ourselves in the love of God. And that reminds me of John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. We love God, so it's not a burden, but a joy to keep his commandments. We're merciful to doubting sheep, which is good, because even when we're faithless, God is faithful. And finally, we're to save others. How? By pointing them to God, our Savior. What does that say again? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. I want you to keep that in your head. Three things that I will try to point out by the grace of God, for the glory of God. Number one, God's ability versus man's inability. Number two, eternal security. Number three, the reason or why we have this doxology at the end of Jude. So, first of all, let's define our terms. This guy's talking about doxology a lot. What is that? Lofty term. Doxology. This passage is commonly referred to as, this is really, I'm going to really surprise you. This passage is commonly referred to as the Jude doxology. Why? Because it's in the book of Jude and it's a doxology. Very original and aptly named, right? I, I will add, if you Google it, um, Jude doxology, a song by a band called Ghost Ship will uh, pop up, and it's pretty good. I, I do recommend you check it out. It's not a ghost ship like a movie. There was a really cheesy movie called Ghost Ship a while back, I think. Um, so what is a doxology? Doxology is an expression of praise to God. It is a praise saying or a word of praise from man to God, not to be confused with a benediction, when we generally, what we generally do toward the end of a service. A benediction is usually a word from God to man pronouncing blessings, such as, now may the God of peace be with you all. That's a benediction. I'm glad we cleared that up. So, each of the five books of Psalms end in doxology. The last verse of the Psalms, I think, says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's a doxology. The New Testament records quite a few doxologies in other places, and generally they carry the theme of praising God 
for his glory and his grace. Glory and grace. We find many examples in the Bible of doxology, but another way the term is used is in relation to hymns or songs. When you hear the word, you may think of the doxology, a hymn written by Thomas Kinn in 1674. Do you know how it goes? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Yeah, you know it. Okay. I'm glad. <laughs> all right. Uh, that wasn't bad for being sick the last few days. All right. Uh, we sing something here called Messenger Doxology, which is pretty much a, uh, a modern version of that. But anyway, it carries the idea of a joyful expression of praise to God. Right? So it's not just like an acknowledgement. God's great. Yeah, okay. Even the demons do that. It's not just an acknowledgement. It's a joyful expression. And at first glance, we may, it may seem strange. We just went from talking about false teachers and Christian obedience. If you're looking at the book of Jude and you come across this and you're like, where did this come from? Uh, for what God in Christ has done for us, but it actually flows in perfect response to what has already been stated. So looking at the first part of verse 24, point one, God's ability. Now to him who is able. I had to stop there. I didn't get very far. I love this phrase. Now to him who is able, the exact phrase is used two other times in the Bible. Not by Jude. Uh, in, in the ESV translation, too, I will add that. Um, one we already visited in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do above all that we ask or think. That's pretty cool. One we haven't been to, uh, Romans 16.27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you by my gospel. The words of Paul. The weak Greek word here for able here is pretty common. Dunamai. It generally refers to the ability to accomplish something. It can be rendered in the positive for can or able, and in the negative for cannot or not able. It's a fairly common word. Like I said, it, it, it appears about 210 times. So when dunamai is applied to men, I, I, I looked it up. It's, it's really interesting. And when it's applied to men, it usually talks about our inability. Verses such as the one we've already, one we've already quoted, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot, he is not able to understand the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually discerned. Jesus tells the disciples in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. You are not able. Or even in John 3, 3, there's, here's a popular one. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. When dunamai, now this is more interesting. When dunamai is applied to God and his ability, you hear things like John 10, 29, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, referring to believers. Or Hebrews 7.25 goes with the theme of today. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Or even God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, Matthew 3.9. He is able 
how do you think the ability, back to context here, how do you think the ability of the false teachers in Jude matches up to God's ability? If God's speaking to men, think about this, if God's speaking to men who will receive the Holy Spirit says, apart from me you can do nothing, meaning nothing of any good or profit, what ability for good works do you think men without the Spirit have? Answer, nothing. The Christian does good works only by the grace of God, Christ, to the glory of God, the Father, through the Holy Spirit of God. So God gets the credit for everything. And that's wonderful. And it's a grace to get to do a good work. Point two, eternal security. Still looking at verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you. I didn't get very far again. Look at that. Verse, uh, look at verse 1 again. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude began his letter with being kept, and he's ending it with the same idea. Has anyone ever heard of a doctrine or a teaching called perseverance of the saints? Or eternal security. Yeah? It basically means that if you are a blood-brought blood brought believer, tongue twister, a brother or sister in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. You can't be saved and then be unsaved, or once saved, always saved. Um, I will say before I go any farther that um, fire insurance or praying a prayer one time in life and nothing ever changing out of that. The Bible says, he who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. I will say that that is horrible, and that is not the doctrine of eternal security. Um, those who he has bought will want to, will love him, and want to keep his commandments. It won't be burdensome. So, a few questions for you. Do you think you can lose your salvation? Do you think we are responsible for getting ourselves to heaven? That's a scary thought. I don't think heaven would be a very enjoyable place. I'm here. How'd you get here? You're looking at it. I did it. I will tell you this. If, if, how do you know? How do you know? If it's up to you, how do you know if you'll be in Christ tomorrow? Are you that strong? Are you that able to hold on? If salvation was in your hands, you would lose it. If it were up to us to keep our salvation, we would lose it. We're too weak and frail. God is strong, though, and he is able. And to quote Charles Spurgeon, Ah, my brothers and sisters, we can take from this. The brightest saints on earth would fall into the lowest hell if God did not keep them from falling. In Philippians 1.6, it says, He that began a good work in you will perfect it to the end. To simplify, it means that, Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. If he saved you, if he paid for your sins, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 16.18, Jesus speaking to Peter, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What about the people that fall away, though? What about the people that profess Christ or Jesus is Lord and now 
they don't believe. My friend at youth group, you know, he's, he's an atheist now. What about that guy? Well, in 1 John 2.19, the Bible says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Let me tell you this. If Christ bore your sin, he will not lose his church. No one can snatch them out of his hand. After all, he is able. He is able to keep us because the work that requires saving is not based on my ability or yours, sorry. It's based on his ability. Isn't that good news? Now, I thought I'd, I thought I'd quote this. Um, for those of you who know, um, R.C. Sproul recently passed away. Um, very prominent Christian theologian. A lot of people I know have learned from him. And this is him talking about perseverance of the saints. I think this little catchphrase, perseverance of the saints, is dangerously misleading. It suggests that the perseverance is something that we do, perhaps in and of ourselves. I believe that saints do persevere in faith and that those who have been effectually called by God and have been reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit endure to the end. However, they persevere not because they are so diligent in making use of the mercies of God. The only reason we can give why any of us continue on in the faith is because we have been preserved. So I prefer the term preservation of the saints because the process by which we are kept state of grace is something that is accomplished by God. My confidence in my preservation is not in my ability to persevere. My confidence rests in the power of Christ to sustain me from his grace and by the power of his intercession. He is going to bring us safely home. Thank you, Dr. Sproul. Even though they carry the same meaning, I do like the idea of preserved more than persevere. After all, the word is kept. God is keeping us and preserving us. He is able to keep you. From what? Keep you from stumbling. To present you blameless. Let's talk about stumbling. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. What generally happens after you stumble? You're walking along and you stumble. What's the next thing that happens? I'm not going to illustrate. You fall down. Thank you. We just heard about a group of people in this letter trying to cause God's people to place their focus on them. These false teachers are not your friends. They are actually in service to the prince of the power of the air, whether they know it or not, and they're trying to hoist themselves up. They don't want you to behold Christ. That would take away from them. They aren't able to keep God's sheep deceived, though. They will try, and they may be successful for a season, but ultimately, they will not be able to make you stumble. Why? God is able to keep you from stumbling by his preserving grace. Even your own will or fortitude will not be enough. God's grace is bigger than your heart. In fact, you can rejoice in the fact that you aren't the one in control of your salvation. That's good news. 
Christ uttered the words, it is finished, not me or you. He and he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. More on that in a minute. And to present you, keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Blameless. Oh, I, I got to talk about blameless. This is a fitting word. Blameless or without blame or without fault. Uh, nothing can be held against you. If, if you. if you didn't commit a crime or if you're, if you're not charged with a crime, you did commit the crime. You cannot be charged for the blame. Christ makes us holy without spot or blemish. The judge is my defense, we sing. Though our sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And yet again, not because of us. Blameless does not translate to deserving. Okay? Remember, in order to be presented blameless, we had to have some kind of blame in the first place. When Adam sinned in the garden, his offense passed on to his seed. Everybody in this room, you didn't come from Mars or anywhere else, passed on the seed from Adam, and all of mankind fell into sin. So what do sinners deserve? Wrath. Judgment. The things reserved for these false teachers that we hear about. What do sinners receive? That depends. In the case of the church, we will stand before the throne of God, blameless. Why? Based on the work of Christ. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, Ephesians 1.4, that God gave Christ who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Second Corinthians 5.21. Christ's righteousness, his status is imputed to us. The standing that Jesus had before the Father, the one the Father refers to as the one in whom he is well pleased, his beloved Son, places his own righteousness on us. So all the wages of sin, every single offense you have committed or will commit, have been paid for in Christ, past, present, and future. You trade rags fitted for death, garments stained by sin, for a cloak of righteousness, which Jesus himself earned for you. Standing where? Standing before the presence of God, looking at Jude, looking, still looking at verse 24. This is a truly remarkable thing. We have examples of people standing in front of the presence of God. Think about how fallen man reacts to the presence of the holiness of God. Isaiah pronounced a curse on himself. Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Ezekiel fell over as if he was dead. Peter, James, and John were overcome with fear after the Mount of Transfiguration. And John fainted at the sight of the glorified Christ. You have to be glorified to stand before the presence of God, or you would burn up from his sheer goodness or holiness. You have to be without sin. You have to be blameless, holy, and pure, without spot or blemish. And there's only one way to have that status. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and you will be saved. You must believe in the only God, our Savior. Not only did Christ present you blameless in the presence of his glory, but he did it with what? Great joy. It wasn't some burden for him. Quoting from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have sur surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, saints that have gone before us, let us also lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely to us. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What joy? What joy there? The joy of bringing many sons to glory, to the glory of God. He humbled himself down to frail humanity, took the form of a servant. This is God we're talking about. Took the form of a servant, bore a cross, took the punishment due us, literally going through hell. You hear people say that flippantly. No, Christ, if you, if you went through hell, you're Jesus. Otherwise, you're in hell. Literally took, took the punish due, uh, punishment due us, literally went through hell, to present you and I blameless before the presence of God. Does that not drive your heart to doxology? Point three, the reason for doxology. Verse 25, the first part. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, our Savior. Jesus Christ. What better Savior could there be than God? He who holds the heavens in his hands is the same as the one who bore the blame we deserve. They shall call his name Jesus, for he shall, he will save his people from their sin. Matthew 1.21. Keeping with the theme of eternal security right there, he will save his people. There is no other name on heaven or under earth that would be worth uttering a doxology to. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the saving branch of the triune God who is able to save you to the uttermost. We are bought and made blameless through Jesus, Ephesians 2.8. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, but is the gift of God. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith in what? Me? You? No, Jesus Christ, God our Savior. So let's define these terms here. Glory. What is the glory in reference to here? Glory can be defined as the sum total of all that God is and all that God does. Everything about him is glorious, particularly here the glory of the risen Christ, the only true glorious one. Everything should be done by and to the glory of God, and all glory is due to Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Majesty, second term. Greatness or magnificence, God is indeed very great. Great is our God, great is our God. We just sang it. That's a doxology, too. Another popular song, 
The splendor of the king. Splendor, magnificence, greatness, majesty. Clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice. Rejoice to God. Response to God. That sounds like doxology. Majesty is the greatness of God. He isn't just a king or a lord, right? He's the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. We sing about that too. He's the name above all names and worthy of all praise. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. How great is our God? That's doxology. Dominion. Dominion has to do with God's sovereignty. God has the rule over all things. The Greek word here can note to strength or might. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever you tell him to. He does whatever he pleases. Why? Because dominion, synonymous with the next word, authority, power in some translations. As the authoritative one, the king has power over everything. He has the power to carry out whatever he wishes. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and earth has been granted to me by the will of the Father. So, why this doxology here? Where did this exaltation to God come from? What made Jude, led by the Spirit, what caused him to say this? Think about these false teachers again. Do false teachers care about God's glory? No. They want the glory for themselves. They want the credit. Verse 10 says they blaspheme all that they don't understand. That's a lot. They blaspheme God because they can't understand him. They know nothing of the glory of God because they don't know Christ. What about God's majesty? And by the way, think about some of these other guys that you hear from. Like the guy we quoted first, Edwards. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. R.C. Sproul. God's doing it. God's preserving me. Paul. For when I'm weak, he is strong. Jude. Right here. Contrast that with what some of these guys on TV or in churches that I may not know about are teaching. They can't understand him. They don't know Christ. What about God's majesty? They don't ascribe Jesus' majesty because they don't want you to look at his greatness. They want you to look at theirs. Do you have some view of these people in your head right now? They're big deals, big shots. False teachers want to be kings and lords. Verse 12 calls them shepherds that feed themselves. That's not a good shepherd. Leaders that only care about their own agenda do not understand true majesty. What did Jesus do? Humbled himself down in the form of a servant. What do these guys do? Hoist themselves up. Do these teachers want you to think about God's dominion or sovereignty? No way. 
No. There's too much rest in that. The higher view one has of God, the lower view you have of man. False teachers want to be exalted. They will attempt to lower God down in their speech to boost themselves up. Authority. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. Do they care about God's authority or power? 8 says they rely on dreams, defile their flesh, and reject what? Authority. Why? If they can convince you of the power they possess, they can lower your view of God and influence you from their corrupt minds. They want those things. They want the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the authority. They want what they can't have. And they'll never have it. Why? Because they're not able. They're not Him who is able. Jesus is glorious and majestic, deserving all power and authority from now into everlasting Firstborn over all creation. Picture someone that you would consider a false teacher. You don't have to close your eyes. Picture someone you would consider a false teacher. If you can't think of a false teacher, picture someone who isn't in Christ. Now I want to ask you, are you tempted to think inside yourself, in your heart, I'm way better than that guy. I made the right decision to follow Christ and they didn't. That's why I'm going to stand in the presence of God. Because I'm not like them. I'm like me. (laughs) If only they would grab onto Christ and hold on to him like I did. Church, if God's grace hadn't pulled you or me from the garments stained with sin, we could have gone in the exact same direction. If not for God's grace, there we go. There's a reason we need to be counted blameless and kept from stumbling. We aren't able to present ourselves blameless and we aren't capable of keeping ourselves from stumbling. Just the fact that we are told we are now blameless tells you in your heart that you're to blame for your sin. You can't resolve, back to resolutions, you can't resolve yourself to be sinless or blameless, you aren't able to do it. Now to him who is able. Colossians 1, 22 and 20, or 21 and 22 says, And you, church, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, power, and authority for all time, now and forever. Isn't it interesting? The more you look back at what we've been brought out of, the theology drives the doxology. It's not in and of itself. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us and we're most satisfied in him. The more we know about God, this is what I think just in retrospect, the more we know about God, The more we love God, the more satisfied we are in God. 
And the more that theology, we love his word. The Bible is his word. And that theology that we gather from this book is not to boost ourselves up, but to drive us to doxology. Look at the words at the end of 25. Before all time, now, and forever. Amen. I think if we're honest, that statement is way above our heads. How Jude says such a remarkable thing in that few of words displays the, the inspiration of God. Before all time, think about this, before all time, Christ, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, was glorious, majestic, powerful, and able to do anything, all authority. He is God, and he's worthy to be praised. He is all of these attributes now, back before time, and when we are glorified and come into his presence for all eternity, when the finite joins the infinite, whoa, when the corruptible becomes incorruptible because of the Lamb, we will still ascribe him all blessing and honor and all power and majesty and glory now and forever. Amen. So be it. He who was and is and is to come is far greater and worthy of your doxology. I would like to close by bringing us back around to 18-year-old Jonathan Edwards. Of the 70 resolutions that he wrote, there's one that really stuck out to me this past week. Number 53, resolved to improve every opportunity when I am in the best and happiest frame of mind to cast and venture my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him and consecrate myself wholly to him, that from this I may have assurance of my eternal safety, knowing that my confidence is in my Redeemer. I love that. I'm not going to tell you to do a New Year's resolution. But if you need an idea, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> Cast yourself on God, our Savior, knowing of his ability to keep you and to present you blameless before his presence with exceeding joy, great joy. He will keep you. He has promised. He is faithful. And he alone is able. Let's respond together in doxology. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for reminding us of our inability so that we can rest in your ability. We thank you that we aren't persevering, but that you are preserving us. And that Jesus... When, when you look at us, God, you see Jesus. You see that same standing, that, that righteousness that's been earned for us. We love you, God. We ask that you drive our hearts to doxology. Now, as we sing together, in your name we pray.